Feeling and On Balance starts right now. Have a great show. Tonight, Republican repeat. Absolutely, I'm going to be a dictator for one day. Biden hit with awful poll numbers, failing on the economy, the border, even his brain. This is the biggest lead NBC has ever had in 16 polls for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Will Republicans blow 2024 like they did 2022? Bill O'Reilly on why Trump isn't up 20 points. The U.S. strikes back. Iran hits us again. New attacks against American troops in Syria show the message was delivered but not received. Does America need to target Tehran to be heard loud and clear? Catholics versus jihadis. We have the memo. The FBI is very interested in what happens inside Catholic churches. Are they just as focused on the city dubbed America's jihadi capital? And the song that aged well. I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. world stood up and cheered to kill a made-up media controversy. What will the Washington Post do now? Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First this Monday night, the 2022 repeat. Remember February of 2022? Wasn't that long ago. Republicans said they would win big majorities in the House and Senate. They told us to just look at the polls. And to be fair, the polls looked about the same then as they do now. This is from NBC over the weekend. The poll found Americans trust President Trump more on the issues by big numbers, up 35 on the border. Mental and physical health, up 23 points. Crime and violence, up 21 points. Over Joe Biden competency, up 16 points. Trump up 11 points on improving America's standing in the world. And as you might imagine, the numbers left our friends at MSNBC and even NBC News shocked. Well, you know, uh, Steve, there are a lot of numbers in here that are shocking to a lot of our viewers. I'll just say it right here. A lot of them shocking to me. The economy is so striking, Steve, because jobs are up. Inflation is down. Voters aren't giving him credit for that, clearly. The poll shows Biden is leading among black voters by 59 points, which is concerning for the White House when you remember that the president won that voting block by 75 points in 2020. These are huge problems for Joe Biden. Yet for some reason in a head-to-head matchup, Mr. Trump leads only by five points in the same poll. When you look at the issues, All of the most important issues to Americans, he leads by double digits. In some points, he's up by 20 and 30 points. In the head-to-head matchup, he's only up five. And we've seen this play out before. Polls predicted a red wave in 2022. Republicans, as you heard, promised majorities in the House, majorities in the Senate. They were going to take over Capitol Hill. Well, Democrats control the Senate. And as we've reported, Republicans have such a slim majority in the House They mostly fight amongst themselves. We'll get to that a little later. Looking forward, though, Biden's poll numbers are about to change. The media narrative surrounding the economy and border will move in his favor. Biden knows it. He and his team are not worried. And we know that because he's skipping the usual pre-Super Bowl TV interview for the second time. And 
To be fair, they know the media won't call them on it, so they get to do it. President Biden knows he doesn't need to do a pre-election blitz. He can let Trump run against himself. There is one safe bet in politics. Never underestimate Republicans' ability to screw things up. We start tonight with Bill O'Reilly, former Fox News host, anchor of the No Spin News, author of Confronting the President's No Spin Assessments from Washington to Biden, out later this year. Mr. O, good to see you, sir, as always. All right, what is the No Spin take on why Donald Trump is not up double digits when you have him on the issues up so high? Demeanor. So uh, there are millions of voters, um, women in particular, who simply don't like Trump's demeanor. Um, So that is his handicap going into November, because I don't believe he's going to change his demeanor. He should. Should be a kinder, gentler Donald Trump. But that's not in his nature. He'll ride it to the end and absolutely could boomerang back and hit him right in the nose. I'm glad to have you on tonight because I thought over the weekend when it came out that Joe Biden would not be doing the usual Super Bowl interview. I thought about your two interviews. Uh, We worked together at Fox at the time with Barack Obama, who certainly, I think, did not want to step into the no spin zone um, and come on with you. But he did it anyway. Um, And then at the end of the last interview, this is what you asked him. Take a listen. I think a lot of the viewership uh, gravitates. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think you're being treated fairly by Fox News now? Uh, I would say that the news guys, I think, try to do a good job. Although, look, let's face it. I mean, Fox News, I think, has a has a point of view. There's nothing wrong with it. There's a strong history in America of, uh, of all news having some sort of point of view. And Fox News has a point of view, and I, I think that's part of our democracy. Obama felt compelled to sit down with you twice, yet Biden doesn't feel compelled even to sit down with CBS. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm a much nicer guy than anybody (laughs) CBS has, or yeah. Better looking Um, for sure. And Obama liked me, um, and I think he enjoyed the joust. You know, seven years ago today, I interviewed Donald Trump for a Super Bowl extravaganza. Those interviews with Obama were live. Hardest interviews I've ever done because you got to keep them on track. You only have a certain amount of time. And Obama can do 10 minutes on your socks. Very eloquent guy. But President Obama and I had a mutual respect. And I thought that uh, it was my job to go in, not ask him powder puff questions as most Super Bowl interviewers do. But to get to some of the issues that I was interested in. And I think he respected the process. We have posted all of those interviews, Leland, on BillOReilly.com, start to finish. You can see them all, the Trump and the two with Obama. Now, the reason Joe Biden isn't going to do uh, the interview with CBS, which has been exceedingly kind to him, CBS News, exceedingly kind, as they were to Barack Obama. You remember Steve Croft. 60 Minutes and Obama, uh, they were like camp buddies. Um, CBS does not have any conservative presence on its air. None. And there's nothing to fear on a pre-interview with CBS, 
But Joe Biden's handlers, including his wife, who is growing in influence, Joe Biden, they don't know what he's going to say from hour to hour. They cannot put him out there because if a tough question is lodged, nobody knows whether Biden is capable of answering it without blowing himself up. And that's why he's not Hmm. doing it. I'm assuming that you uh, would agree with Donald Trump that if he were to go on CBS as he offered to, he said, look, if Biden won't do it, I'll come on. It'll be ratings gold. I thought it was interesting. Our friends in media said CBS should call Trump's bluff. You know Trump pretty well. That doesn't sound like a bluff from him, does it? That's not a bluff. He'd love to do that. Yeah, Um, that's right. Because Trump's like Obama. He he can Trump can do. Um, 10 minutes on uh, what you had for lunch. I mean, he's just going to steamroll right through. That's why these interviews with these guys were so difficult for me. I did not want to be rude and disrespect the office of the presidency, but I wasn't going to let him steamroll me, and I told them both that before the interview. I said, when this finger goes up, that means I want to get in. And if you can wrap up your thought, but if you don't respect the finger, and it wasn't the middle finger, then I'm going to jump in. All right? Whatever. And they both did, which is why it's worth watching those interviews. And a lot of the topics are relevant to today. No, they they are. I think one of the ones that would be most relevant today is the border. We've got the big border bill coming up. We're going to have Congressman Michael Waltz on it a a little bit later. I'm interested in your take on it. Mine is that at least some point we may have hope that we're going to have real policy and compromise and change here in Washington. The, uh, The sausage being made is never pretty. But there's people who are winning the debate. Who do you think it is? All right, first of all, hope and change are stealing out from Obama. Second of all, let me ask you a question. What American citizen benefits from this border bill? Who? Who benefits in America? Well, I think you said an important point because you said citizen, and I'm thinking where you're going is that the people who really benefit are Democrats in these big states where you've got millions of additional people that have already come in, and the border bill kind of puts no, off really, not any kind people. of deportation. Okay. They're not real people. No, no, they're, they're not people. Republicans and Democrats, who that's what they do for their lives, they're not people. They're AI. And, and I'd be very, I'd de-emphasize the I. What working person in this country Benefits from this border bill. Who? No one. That's why there's silence. No one benefits from it. And if you read the bill, which I have, 370 pages of it, I'm a boring guy, so I can do that. It's impossible to implement it. What, are you going to have clickers? On these people uh, coming in from asylum from San Diego to Brownsville, where are they going to put them? Where? where? All right, there aren't enough Motel 6s. All right, it could not be done. And here's the insult to Leland Vittert tonight, to you. This doesn't need to happen. No, I know. Remember Barack Obama? 
I got a pen. Tomorrow, Biden writes an executive order that says no more asylum claims will be processed by the U.S. government for six months. No, and the border stops. Until we sort out what we have now and the state and locals that are drowning process the millions of migrants who are already here. Does that make sense to you? I, I, look, we've said we've said that we said the very same thing a number of times. You, 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 it's sort of there's a cognitive dissonance, right? And you've got the mayor of New York saying it's such a crisis, and at the same time handing out uh, credit cards, uh, which only encourage people to come. So, uh, Bill, you make a, you make a very good point that nobody wins uh, in America on this one. Uh, we're going to ask Michael Waltz about it. We'll see you uh, next week, my friend. Thank you. All right. Foreign policy will have a big impact on the president's poll numbers. It is because not so much people agree or disagree with foreign policy, but it has to go. It goes to how Americans feel. Right. If you feel unsafe, if you feel like Iran is bombing and killing American soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines, it makes you feel unsafe. And that affects the president's approval rating. And President Biden's approval rating is way underwater, partly because the deterrence policy that he seems to think he has when it comes to Iran is not working. Just look at the past 72 hours in the Middle East. Iranian-backed groups have launched three attacks since the U.S. struck on Friday night. And since the administration trouted out its foreign policy team, as we predicted they would do, on Sunday for a victory lap. The president's not going to sit back and idly just take that. We're going to respond. We're going to respond as aggressively as we need to. We intend to take additional strikes uh, and additional action to continue to send a clear message that the United States will respond when our forces are attacked or our people are killed. few things appear clear now. The Iranians did not tell their militia friends to stop. And the threat of additional American attacks has not frightened the terrorist. Michael O'Hanlon is here. Hanlon, Michael O'Hanlon is here, Senior Fellow and Director of Research in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institute. It's good to see you, sir. Thank you. Um, is it fair to say that the strikes over the weekend by the United States were not enough to deter Iran and its friends? Probably right. We're going to have to keep watching, but I take your point. I think you did a good graphic to show that things have continued unfortunately, in a bad direction since the strikes. We have to always bear in mind that in the Middle East, there are rarely good options and things can usually get worse. And we spent a lot of time 20 years ago trying to decide how to solve a problem. And we didn't solve it. We made it a lot worse for ourselves and for others. So I'm inclined to think we may need to start doing things like attacking Iranian oil and gas infrastructure. But I also sort of want to be patient and see what happens over coming days and weeks, try to sort of map out the pace of attacks by Iranian proxies in the future versus what we've seen in the last four months, and then reassess. Because I don't think yeah. there's any foolproof option here, and, and I'm nervous about crossing a threshold, but we have to be willing to cross a threshold if this doesn't suffice. You know, I think you make a great point about how complicated the Middle East is. I was I was there for four years, and I remember covering uh, the Egyptian Revolution and the Libyan Revolution. I remember being in those moments thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be great, and this is democracy coming, and all the things that we all hoped, and then it all 
um, fell apart, especially when you think about Libya and what's happened in Syria, what's happened in Yemen uh, after uh, the Arab Spring there. Your, your point's well made. I get from an academic standpoint, even from a, a think tank standpoint, and for, forgive the, the saying, but we're, we're going to track the number of attacks, right? We're going to say, okay, they did, they did 15 last week. Now they've done seven this week. They do four the week after. Everything's going to be fine. But then I'm struck by what uh, John Kirby said. The president's not going to sit back and take it. We're going to respond. Jake Sullivan, uh, we're going to send a clear message. The United States will respond when our forces are attacked and our people are killed. The fact of the matter was three people were killed. Um, these, are three, these are three soldiers who signed up to wear the flag in the United States and risk their lives. And the flip side of that, right, is that we're going to protect you. And I couldn't help but think as I was watching those interviews, well, fellas, what if we had done these attacks before they were killed? What if we had done these attacks before the, you know, on the 150th time the Iranians or the 151st time the Iranians must have strike? Might they be alive today? And if it's really fair to our troops to say, hey, sit there and we'll just see if the number of attacks every week goes down. No, you make fair points. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, it, the Iranians were trying to kill us before they succeeded, or their proxies were, which means the Iranians were. And therefore, the notion that because someone's trying to kill you and failing, that therefore you allow them a certain amount of forgiveness, it doesn't really compute. So I'm, I'm with you. I think that now that there are dead Americans, especially, we've crossed a new threshold, and our patience should be limited, and our target set should perhaps expand to places where it hasn't before. So I, I like the intensity of the American response. But what troubles me, or I should say at least what I'm keeping my eye on, is whether the target set, being in Iraq and Syria, like it's been for a long time, is going to prove adequate. And I think we may need to start doing things like hitting at the Iranian oil and gas economy, not by sinking ships necessarily in the first instance, because I don't want to destroy the Persian Gulf, but maybe by hitting some infrastructure in Iranian territory. So that, to me, yeah. is the next logical step. Or, or hit one of their spy ships um, in the Red Sea, is something that was su- suggested here on um, Friday night. Michael, it's good to see you as always. Thank you. We'll look forward to having you on set sometime, all right? Sounds great. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Coming up next, the Veep Stakes, Apprentice Style, the new must-see TV created by Donald Trump. Does any of the cast have a chance, though? Pamela, Pamela. Good to I see you again. You in this position. You went to Wharton, you went to Harvard, and you lost again. Here's Pamela, you're fired. And it turns out we might not be that divided after all. What Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs taught us about America that the Washington Post missed. I remember when you were driving, driving in your car. Well, I have a lot of good people. We have a lot of really good people. So you haven't decided who it is? I have a lot of good ideas, but I haven't. And there's no reason to do that So you haven't told that person, you're my person. I I speak to everybody. Donald Trump setting up an apprentice-like miniseries, coming to a TV set near you for the next six months or so. On the show this season, Ben Carson, Tim Scott, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, New York Representative Elise Stefanik, former Trump White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, now the governor of Arkansas. She's been promoted. Carrie Lake. 
We're going to add one to the list. Texas Governor Greg Abbott tonight. Scott Tranter, Director of Data Science, Decision Desk HQ. Kirk Bardell, a Democratic strategist, L.A. Times contributor, and former House GOP Oversight Committee advisor. Okay, now, um, and also both of you fellows got the memo to wear purple ties. There we go. Uh, Kurt had some great comments about this in The Guardian. Uh, We read the column that quoted you extensively. So we begin with Scott Tranter. Do VP picks even matter? Uh, Yes, because you raise money. You get earned media attention that you normally would have to pay for. Um, But they can also be uh, campaign resets. And I think that's kind of what either that's that's what Donald Trump's looking for with that is obviously make a splash, raise a lot of money and potentially a campaign reset. He could also uh, also talk to John McCain. They can be a real problem. Sarah Palin can be caused caused some problems. We'll put the graphic up of the Apprentice uh, VP series coming now. We had Celebrity Apprentice. Now we have VP Apprentice. Uh, Kurt, to you, uh, is there any of these names uh, that should scare Democrats? No, not a single one of them should scare Democrats. Um, I think what we all know about Donald Trump is that no matter who he selects, it's always just going to be the Trump show anyway. Uh, There is no scenario where the vice presidential candidate is going to in any way overshadow the top of the ticket. And so it's always going to be about Donald Trump. And that's what Democrats want. Democrats at least think that that's what they need to be successful in 2024. I think that if Trump were smart, another name that he should add to that list that would be really interesting is the mayor of Dallas, Eric Johnson, who went from being a Democrat, changing his party to being a Republican, something we don't see very often, mayor of a big city, person of color, doing great job on crime. That's right there in the Trump wheelhouse message. The issue of a person of color, right? You're, you're thinking... Dallas mayor, you're also thinking Tim Scott, Ben Carson. That's um, what the data thinks, too, by that's the way. What the, that's what the, da- the data thinks, too. Yeah. And then, look, Donald Trump, for all of his foibles, has proven to be remarkably politically pragmatic. I'm thinking about the Mike Pence pick. He didn't want to pick Mike Pence. He didn't like him because he thought he was poor and hadn't done well in business and on and on and on. But he knew he brought evangelicals in that work. Does, does the data, Scott, show that bringing a Tim Scott or a Ben Carson helps Donald Trump with black men? Absolutely. Is it going to win him the segment? No. But Donald Trump needs to get 10, 15, maybe even high teens percentage for him to make a difference in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. If he's able to do that there and claw away three, four, five, six percent of that, and same thing with Hispanic voters too, he's suddenly competitive in a lot of these battleground states. Yeah. And and interestingly enough, though, Tim Scott, as of recording right now, is, is one of the senators not opposed to the immigration bill. You know, we'll see what happens tomorrow. But that was one of the interesting things that, you know, I looked at your list. Well, just to piggyback on that, Scott's right. If Democrats lose... Oh, wait, oh, oh. Ah, Okay. Get the quote. I can't believe I just said that out loud. (laughs) Freudian slip, continue. If if Democrats lose 5 to 10% of the black vote, of, of what they had last time, I don't see a path for them to win. I think that's also the case in terms of when you look at the gender gap. Like, if Trump were to pick an Elise Stefanik or, or a female, Christy Noem, if that eats into the gender gap that re- Democrats are relying on, the only path Democrats have to win is to win with minorities, people of color, and women. If they lose any of that segment, they're screwed. The name that we're not talking about and wasn't on the graph. Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> Laura Trump. Okay, we keep going. I was going to, look, I'm still thinking about Nikki Haley who talked about that. Take a listen. Are you going to rule it out? I don't play for a second. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. It's offensive when anybody says that, oh, you know, she wants to be vice president. But you're not going to rule it out because you're not going to rule it out. I mean, it's not even a conversation. Okay, so th- that's an old clip. She's since been much more Sherman-esque about it. But to that point, Kurt, look, Donald Trump is famous for needing the 
affirmation and support of people that he that can't he can't get right. If once mm-hmm. you sort of once you turn and you start sucking up to him, he has no use for you. Right. And I'm wondering if Nikki Haley isn't actually sort of playing the smart game here. I mean, you look at let's see, Tim Scott. You look at people like Ron DeSantis, all of whom have eventually bend the knee. Nikki Haley's holding out. I think nothing would cause Trump more satisfaction than if she, if he got her to bend the knee and to say, you know what. Donald Trump's the greatest thing of all time. I think he would relish that. Uh, I'm going to give you the last 10 seconds. Greg Abbott, something to think about? Yeah. Greg Abbott's certainly making headlines on all the right issues, right? Immigration's the number one issue. He's certainly fighting Joe Biden on that, going to make a name for himself. Um, he was once thought of as a presidential candidate. He's young enough and he's got enough money. I mean, he's, he's really making a name for himself and someone to watch. Isn't he leading the rebellion against the youth? I'm thinking that's like 16. People like that in Texas. Leading the rebellion? That's I'm, I'm wondering if suburban women also don't view Greg Abbott as somebody who's a moderate force. Be interesting. And interesting to poll that. We'll do that. We'll that's come, what he was if only we was knew someone that could do polling. Do polling. I know. See, there you go. That's why you guys <laughs> keep coming back. All right, gentlemen, good to see you. Uh, next, Speaker of the House has declared the border bill dead on arrival. Is it possible that the House, Senate, and White House might actually do their jobs? There is hope for that in Washington when we come back. Don't aid uh, Ukraine. Putin will be walk all over Ukraine. We will lose the war. And we could be fighting in Eastern Europe in a NATO ally in a few years. Americans won't like that. All right. So Chuck Schumer's warning that if Congress, meaning the Senate and the House, does not pass this border bill, then all of a sudden American men and women are going to be fighting in Europe. That's one of the many untrue things being said about the massive Ukraine-Israel border deal. Let's see what the facts. Here's what the deal is broadly. $60 billion for Ukraine, $1.4 billion for Israel, $4.8 billion for the Indo-Pacific, $20 billion for the border, plus agreements to tighten border security. Although, as Bill O'Reilly pointed out earlier in the show, uh, there are some sort of difficulties, perhaps, in how they're actually going to tighten border security. House Speaker Mike Johnson says the bill is dead on arrival. That appears to be a talking point. President Biden says he can't secure the border without help from Congress. Here he is today. First bill I introduced was on the border. We don't have enough agents. We don't have enough folks. We don't have enough judges. We don't have enough folks there. We need help. Why won't they give me the help? All the time. And now they're talking about the border. It's out of control. Reasonable people can agree that Mr. Biden could sign an executive order and secure the border within about 24 hours, very easily, actually, because he could remove the incentive to come here. But he won. He will not do that because he wants something in return. Actually, he wants $60 billion in return, plus other things. And now I'm going to give you a take that you will not hear anywhere on cable news. Sausage making is messy. And for the first time in recent memory, the White House, the House, and Senate are sort of doing their jobs. They're negotiating and compromising, maybe, to create legislation on important issues rather than just agreeing to spend more money. Perhaps, actually, these kind of hard conversations where not everybody gets what they want would be helpful here in Washington more often. Joining us now, Florida Congressman Mike Waltz, member of the House Armed Services and Foreign Affairs Intelligence Committee. Congressman, it is good to see you. Uh, Look, the far left is angry about this. The far right's angry about this. You've got everybody posturing and saying things that are untrue. Maybe maybe that's the way, like, Washington should work to get things done. Am I wrong? 
Well, Leland, I'll tell you one thing that, you know, since I uh, left the military and, and, and came into this position in Congress, I have a deep appreciation that our founding fathers, as part of their checks and balances, intended it to be hard. Every other democracy gets one legislative body. Uh, they made it doubly hard with two. Uh, so, you know, look, to your, to your point, there is going to be a back and forth, particularly when the two houses are run by opposing uh, political parties. But to the premise of this agreement, look, we said from day one, uh, break these things up. They deserve uh, individual debates. There are individual issues here. Uh, but to lump them all together was something the, the, the White House was determined to do. Now we have this massive package with all kinds of different uh, aspects to it and all kinds of different interests and, and stakeholders. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess. Um, oh, look, at yeah, the no, end of the day, okay. we no passed HR2. We, yeah. <laughs> so you know, here we are. And we passed HR2 nine months ago. If the Senate didn't like it, wanted to amend it, wanted to send it back, uh, they could have done so last year, but that's what we believed. Trump policies, his executive orders worked. We sought to codify them into law, uh, and they sat for nine months until Ukraine was on the right. verge of running out of money, and then packaged all this together. Uh, and and no, so I, look, it's, it's I, enormously I it, frustrating. But, no, I, I look, I get it, and we've been covering the border. You and I have been talking about it for a long time, but. Look, if not everybody gets what they want, even the Border Patrol came out and said this bill isn't perfect, but at least it's a big step. The Border Patrol union that represents the the line agents. Um, You've got President Biden who's being forced to negotiate and forced to perhaps make some hard choices, not everything that Republicans want on the border. You've got Republicans who are being forced, uh, and I think there's a lot of Republicans who are happy that, that parts of the Republican Party that are isolationists are being forced to vote on Ukraine funding. It all, it all comes around. I, I thought it was interesting. And I, I don't know, I almost read this as a little bit of, of a sign of weakness by President Biden, where he said that he's now threatening to veto a bill where Israel, um, Israel funding comes through uh, alone, that, that President Biden may be, may be realizing that he's in a corner when it comes to actually being forced to do something on the border. Yeah, well, look, as you said in your opener, President Biden, if he wanted to do something on the border, could basically put back the policies that he undid uh, on day one. We know these aren't theoretical. We know what works. Remain in Mexico uh, works. The Border Patrol is telling us it would have a 70 percent deterrent. And now we know that barriers work because we're watching the cartels shift migrant caravans away from Texas towards California and towards uh, Arizona. He could do it if he wanted to tomorrow. Uh, to your point uh, on, on Israel, look, we have provided a lot of aid to Ukraine. We have stopped Putin. It has settled into a stalemate. Uh, but Israel, on the other hand, it could be if Hezbollah uh, decides, if Iran decides to unleash its northern uh, border, they are going to be in a world of hurt. They are in a yep. dire survival situation, and I am shocked. I don't know if this is politics after his trip to Michigan, uh, where the ceasefire, the far left, is, is beating yeah, him up, we're covering that but next. I am shocked, uh, given everything that we provide all over the world, that we're not going to provide $14 billion to Israel, uh, given the right. existential threat that they face. Fair enough. I think, I think you make a great point in terms of what's at stake with domestic politics uh, for the president there. We'll have that in the next segment. 
Congressman, it's always good to see you, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Louis. There is a manhunt underway in St. Louis tonight for an accused killer. He allegedly shot someone from a rival gang or someone he had a disagreement with execution style. And this being television and us being aware of informing the public an accused killer was on the loose, this is where we would normally show you the escapee's picture. Actually, we probably wouldn't show you the picture because an alleged killer on the loose in St. Louis is pretty normal these days, and thus not national news. My old hometown normally earns the distinction of being America's most dangerous city or very close to it. Live pictures of the beautiful arch right there. But in this case, we aren't showing you the picture. We can't show you the picture because the St. Louis Police Department won't release his picture or his name. They won't even describe him, height, weight, hair color, etc. Because that 19-year-old accused killer is deemed a minor by authorities in St. Louis. So the only description given is that he was last seen escaping under a security gate and that he was wearing green pants and a gray shirt. You can imagine the victim's family would be worried today. These are pictures of the victim. And you can imagine the people who live in the neighborhood where this happened, a lot of them law-abiding citizens who can't afford to live anywhere else, are terrified. How would we be able to identify him and turn him in if we saw him? So I think it's ridiculous and they need to do better. The heiress should know what's going on, but leaving us in the closet and in the dark, that's no good. So to everyone in St. Louis tonight, be on the lookout for a 17-year-old, a juvenile, who may or may not still be wearing green pants. His name, again, we don't know. In St. Louis, the rights of an accused killer trump those of all of us to be safe. Coming up next, a Wall Street Journal op-ed calls Dearborn, Michigan, the jihadi, ca- <clears throat> jihadi capital of America. And President Biden warns of more anti-Arab hate. Who's right when we come back? This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Any imams who are taking a, might say, hardline stance on terrorism here in America. In fact, the Wall Street Journal just put out an op-ed highlighting Dearborn, Michigan piece called Detroit Suburbs, Americans' Jihad Capital. And they had some examples, some proof, you might say, of influential Islamic voices there in Dearborn, Michigan, promoting terrorist ideology. For example, this imam who called for the destruction of Israel after October 7th. They left the fire in our hearts that will burn that state until it's demise. To be clear, this is happening in America. These aren't clips of imams from other countries. In America, and in Dearborn, Michigan specifically, another faith leader praised the October 7th attacks, as well as the Hamas fighters who slaughtered babies and raped women. That day that it took place was definitely what we call Ayamullah, one of the days of God. It's true. The brothers who were there, they planned, they trained, they made every effort, blood, sweat, and tears. 
When the Wall Street Journal article came out, the mayor of Dearborn called the article garbage, reckless, bigoted, and Islamophobic. We, of course, asked the mayor to come on. To be fair, we've asked the mayor multiple times to come on since October 7th. He's either refused or not gotten back to us. The invitation is, of course, always open. He then said he was putting out police patrols to protect the mosques and imams because the Wall Street Journal was inspiring violence. It got us thinking, what if these were right-wing leaders, you know, crazy Catholics or something, who would be advocating violence? Certainly the FBI would be involved. And actually, in this case, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to do the thought experiment, the what-if thought experiment, because the FBI already investigated Catholic leaders as domestic terrorists. A new House report from the Judiciary Committee lays out the FBI's actions, specifically a memo that describes some churchgoers, in the FBI's words, as radical traditionalist Catholics. Tracy Walder served at the CIA's Counterterrorism Center, also formerly of the FBI and with us now. I, I'm wondering if I'm right to compare what these imams said to material support for terrorism, which is illegal. I actually think you are right, uh, Leland, and let me explain why. Because the reality is, is the conversation and the speech they are engaging in is hate speech. Pure and simple, full stop. It's intimidation, it's threatening, it's harassment, and it's discriminatory. And you can say something and people not agree with it. But when you are saying that you want to purify the land of swine, apes, and hypocrites, calling for the destruction of Israel, calling for jihad, that is hate speech. And so I think you're correct in comparing it because that's illegal, quite frankly. Yeah, we're looking at some of the rallies that have been held. And they weren't pro-Palestinian rallies. They were pro-Hamas rallies. There's, there, there's a difference. Um, President Biden's response to the Wall Street Journal piece, Americans know that blaming a group of people based on the words of a small few is wrong. That's exactly what can lead to Islamophobia and anti-Arab hate. And it shouldn't happen to the residents of Dearborn or any American town. We must continue to condemn hate in all forms. I think the question would be, is that when you have people who are now being protected by the Dearborn police and uh, idolized by the Dearborn mayor saying these things, that's very different than someone condemning what these imams are saying. I'm, I'm wondering why you think even the mayor of this town wouldn't be condemning what the imams are saying. I think that that's a great question, and that's what I'm very concerned about. He should be condemning it, because I understand we don't want to judge an entire group of people, right, by the actions of just a few. And I get all of that. But if he really wants to take a stand and stand up for his community, he needs to be condemned. No, I I get it. I want to bring this back around, right, because of the issue with the the radical Catholics that were part of the FBI memo. A field office put this out of traditionalist Catholics and on and on and on. I'm wondering why in the FBI that scene is okay, and I'm, I'm guessing if you're an FBI agent in Dearborn, Michigan, who wanted to launch an investigation into these imams, you'd, you'd listen to the President of the United States who tells, tells you that that's Islamophobic. Well, I'm going to be very careful with how I talk about this because I think there are still investigations ongoing. But one of the things that I did at the CIA and at the FBI, we had operations going on in some of these huh. mosques in Dearborn, Michigan. I think some Thank of it God. just is there. <laughs> fair, fair, fair enough. Okay. Well, that's a, it's a fair point. Tracy, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We invite you to sign up for War Notes. It gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. Obviously, you can respond to the email. We read all your comments. We'll have some on social media responses tomorrow. 
those at Leland Vittert on Twitter and Instagram as well. Warnotes.com and subscribe for free. When we come back, something good came out of an award show. No, really. The Grammys taught us something that elite America hates to see. And it's something us all worth hearing when we come back. Nation Heal is just one of the many reactions from last night's fast car performance at the Grammys. I don't normally watch award shows because not much good comes from them. Turns out I was wrong. Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs took the Grammy stage and literally stole the show last night, leaving the audience stargazed, as someone put it. The duo got a standing ovation, a lot of cheers, and they stole the show. And it's important because of what the song was. The Washington Post back in July saw this as a nation divided over fast car. Washington Post style reporter Emily Yar said, although many are thrilled to see fast car back in the spotlight, it was written by Tracy Chapman, uh, the new generation discovering Chapman's work, it's clouded by the fact that as a black queer woman, Chapman, 59, would have almost zero chance of that achievement herself in country music. We try to be a fair show. We asked Emily to come on back then. She declined. We asked her to come back on again today after this performance, and she declined. What's interesting in what the Grammys proved last night is that a beer-drinking country star and a black queer woman can not only get along, they can sing together, they can make each other an awful lot of money, and they can unite audiences from honky-tonks to urban radio stations. It's pretty remarkable what happened, what that song proved, what that performance proved, how what happened with Fast Car maybe gave us a little bit of hope for what can happen to America. So if something good can come out of the Grammys, maybe, just maybe, there is hope for all of us in 2024. Hope you had a great weekend. We'll be here all week. I'll see you on social media until tomorrow. Here's Chris. Everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Monday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. Question, kind of rhetorical. Is the far right going to have to add border patrol agents to the deep state? Why would I ask that? Because the agents union is saying they want the border bill that the House GOP says is dead on arrival and they want it passed. Why? Something is better than nothing. But that may be true for them, but not if you're a player in the two party tango. We're doing nothing to fix problems seems to be the goal. So in the absence of federal action, localities are finding their own solutions. In New York City, Mayor Eric Adams